It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm amped up to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Dave Brock, founder of Partners in Excellence. He's a great blogger, sales coach, consultant, speaker, and most significantly, author of a great new book called The Sales Manager's Survival Guide, Lessons from Sales Front Lines. Dave, welcome back to Accelerate. Thanks, Andy. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You do such a great job on these programs. It's, it, I feel flattered to participate. Well, thanks for joining me again. So, um, maybe people didn't hear your first episode on the show, so take a second, introduce yourself, maybe tell us how you got your start in sales. Oh, super, super. Yeah, uh, it's, again, Dave Brock. I run a company called Partners in Excellence. I got my start in sales in kind of an obscure way. I was uh, actually in the Ph.D. program for physics at, at, at Berkeley and never thought of being a salesperson, got involved in a startup. The startup failed, and I realized, you know, business is more about than about great products. And so I decided I wanted to learn sales and marketing and business Went to the dark side, ended up working for IBM, selling mainframe computers in the New York City. The dark side of the force, yeah. So, yeah, well, I mean, particularly <laughs> for a physicist right. or an engineer, you know, going to sales is the dark side, but going to at the time IBM with mainframe computers in Manhattan is the darkest of all dark sides you could go to. <laughs> so, well, so so I guess the question, the first question I had is, how far into your PhD program did you get? So, I was so like, how, how disappointed were your parents when you said <laughs> when you said you weren't going to finish that PhD? Uh, I don't know that they were disappointed in that because they were helping me fund part of it. But uh, and I think the PhD may have been more well interest in science and those kinds of things, but also not knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up. But uh, so I don't think they were disappointed. I know they questioned me a little bit about IBM because. Uh, my dad had had uh, was a business executive, but he'd had some dealings with IBM that didn't make him real happy. So <laughs> I think he questioned me about IBM a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so so you're working at IBM in Manhattan, selling mainframe systems, and then you ended up with your own company. Yeah, yeah, I ended up, uh, you know, as one would, uh, you know, I ended up uh, going up through the management ranks and, and, and ended up managing a division of IBM and, and, th- and then ended up working in the chairman's office, kind of in the dark days of IBM, where uh, you looked in the tunnel and there wasn't light at the end of the tunnel or it was very, very dim. Uh, at the time, I was recruited away to do a turnaround of a technology company on the West Coast. Um, as EVP of sales, went and did that. And the, 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 what I ended up loving was in the turnaround, we were really transforming the organization. I mean, transforming from some tragic things that prior sales management had done 
Um, and, you know, I had to go through the experience of, of laying off a thousand people and affecting a thousand uh, families. And, and I write about that a little bit in the book. But, you know, I'd learned so much in that transformation experience. I started doing a bunch of turnarounds and then figured out how to systematize that. And that's building my own company called Partners in Excellence. So we do a lot of business strategy, sales, marketing, all kind of customer-facing types of things and saying, how do we grow our organizations? How do we build our capability to connect with the, uh, the customer in new and, and value-based ways? And, and how do we really drive profound growth? So it's either you see high-performing organizations trying to say, what do we do next and how do we continue to grow? Or troubled organizations that are saying, how do we survive? How mm-hmm. do we change and how do we move from there? Okay, so speaking of survival, I mean, you've, you've written this book, The Sales Manager Survival Guide, an excellent book. Mm-hmm. So Thank first you. question I guess I have for you is, so <laughs> what's the tougher job, being a sales rep or a frontline sales manager? You know, I, I, it, I think it all depends on your perspective. But in reality, I think the really toughest job um, in sales right now is the job of the frontline sales manager because the frontline sales manager – is always caught between a rock and a hard place. They're always caught between serving their people and helping their people and serving the business and doing what executive management wants to do. And and it's that difficult point where you translate the strategy and the programs and the things that the organization wants to do and says they have to do to grow to execution. And it's, it's, how do I how do I get each one of my people doing the right things with the right people at the right time? How do I get each one of my people performing at the highest levels possible? So, you know, it's that, that kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's that translation of of corporate strategy into day-to-day execution, which is I think what makes the um, the job of the frontline sales manager so challenging. It seems, though, it's like one of the contributing causes, though, to some of the issues we see with frontline managers, which is that, you know, it, it, especially given the availability of all this data about sales now, is that we seem to be more relying on scripted, automated processes and moving away from a lot of what you talk about, which is sort of this yeah, person-to-person selling. Well, I, I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion around what's your sales model, what's your go-to-customer model, and a lot of the, you know, the SaaS-based kind of high-volume, high-velocity sales approaches are getting a lot of talk right now because they're new, fresh, and, and you see companies growing wildly and implementing them. Uh, of course, growing from a million-dollar company to a $2 million company is very different from growing from a billion-dollar company to um, a $1.1 billion company. Mm-hmm. So, so there's some, some differences there, but I think that um, – uh, regardless of your sales model, you still need strong leadership and strong personal leadership to really drive performance. So it's it's if you're a manager and you're managing a team of SDRs, or if you're a manager and you're you're managing a team of, of 
inside salespeople or you're managing channel managers or you're managing territory reps or managing account managers. You know, the issues, um, while different, are the same. The issue is my job as a manager is to maximize the performance of those people in their jobs. So how do I look at my team of SDRs and, and each person in that team and say, how do I, I, I look at, say, Andy, maybe you're one of my SDRs. How do I look at what you're really good at and help you become better at that. And what are the things that you need to improve in being an STR? And, and, and how, do I, how can I help you get better? Well, I think that, so, that really speaks to the, one of the questions that, that I hear frequently from people in, and admittedly somewhat in the you know, tech-driven SaaS world and so on, is that given the way these sort of strict processes are laid down, is, is they're wondering how they bring to bear their individual strengths that might be slightly at variance from from this you know, process that's documented laid out, but yeah, you know, how do they bring their individual strengths to bear, and how does a manager help them help them do that? Well, and and I, I think it it is you know if we could do these things as automatons, we would uh, we would uh, introduce machines that do that and and machine voices that do that prospecting and so on and so forth. The point is we can't. This is a people-to-people business, whether it's an SDR calling a prospect trying to get an appointment or uh, a global account manager calling uh, on somebody trying to do uh, qualify a big deal, is this is a people-to-people thing. So we're dealing with people who deal with people. And each person, you know, because we're people, we have imperfections. So each person has different strengths and different weaknesses. And the trick of the sales manager's job is to start recognizing that and figuring out how we build upon, again, those strengths and and diminish those weaknesses. Yeah, to move beyond the metrics and managing people to the person-to-person coaching. And, And I think too many people rely too strongly on the metrics, whether it's you aren't making enough calls per day, your pipeline looks like garbage, and so on and so forth. What they aren't doing is they aren't aren't saying the metrics are just an indicator of a, a potential problem area or a potential opportunity area. How do I peel those back and understand what's really going on? So what's really going on with one person's effectiveness in making prospecting calls may be very different than another person. And, you know, it's my job as a manager to decode that and work with each person as an individual. So one of the things we're seeing with, you know, the influx of data into sales and so on is is really different career paths for people becoming sales managers. So, you know, in general, you know, your opinion, you know, where, where's the best place to find your sales managers? I mean, is it from the ranks of sales or is it somebody that's been doing something else? Um, clearly we've seen some successes in, in each, um, you know, so I, I think a lot of it is mindset and ability to learn. I mean, but, but pragmatically is, you know, I would tend to recruit, from within sales. I mean, you can't be a good sales manager unless you really understand 
what, um, particularly a fr- frontline sales manager, unless you really understand selling. And, and it's not just the theory of selling, but it's the, the practice and the reality of selling. It's, you know, how do you deal with the frustrations that we all face every day? How do you deal with the rejection? Unless you've had some experience and, and some feeling for that, you can't establish that empathy that's so critical in, in managing your people. So I think having some experience is is critical to your effectiveness as a sales uh, manager uh, and to establishing credibility with your team. Uh, at the same time, I think one of the mistakes we make is we try and take our very highest performing salesperson and put them into a sales management job where they may be the wrong person. So, you know, as you start looking at the characteristics and competencies of a, a good frontline sales manager, it's not just their past experience in selling. You know, I, I've seen people that were okay, not outstanding salespeople who are stunning managers. So, you know, they have that that knowledge of selling, but they have that knowledge of uh, that business management piece to understand how to look at, at people, how to look at businesses, analyze, understand them, and how to identify problems and, and how to assess people and start to improve their performance. They have that coaching expertise. They have that empathy and so on and so forth. So it, as we look at ma- uh, managers, there are a whole bunch of competencies and characteristics we're looking at for great sales managers and being a great salesperson is 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 one, but not necessarily the important one. Right, and I think that as it gets back to senior level executives and higher level managers, saying, "Look, there's another way to reward our top performers other than making them managers." That's exactly it, and that's. I mean, I think. Um, I think. Um, I mean, one things. I mean, I, I respect you know organizations like IBM and, and some very very large organizations where you look at basically multiple career paths. You know, and and you know, as a, a young salesperson in IBM, I had multiple career paths I could go on. I could, I could grow, I'd go from a salesperson and individual contributor up the management chain, which is what I chose to do. I, I could grow. As, as a salesperson and individual contributor up to very, very senior sales roles who had ve- huge, uh, huge, account huge levels, yeah. huge account <laughs> responsibility, huge levels of performance and who were sought after by the top, ex- top executives to say, what should we be doing with this account or what should we, we be doing to address these issues? So they had huge levels of responsibility and there are alternatives. I could have gone into marketing or finance or other kinds of things. So I think as we start, uh, as organizations need to address this whole issue of career pathing, um, I mean, one of the reasons we see such high turnover, I think, in in sales organizations today, I think what the average uh, turnover is something around uh, 25 to 30 months is part of it is in particular among, uh, among millennials is they don't see any future for themselves. It's it's how do I grow? How do I develop? Where do I go in my career? And, and too many organizations don't show that that that, you know, here's where you can go, you know, here's what you can do. And if you're a top performer, we want to retain you. 
but we aren't going to, we, we're going to provide you some growth opportunities as well. Otherwise, you'll go someplace where you can get those growth opportunities. Right. And we're not going to lay out this profile that the only way to grow is to become a manager. Because exactly. I, mean, exactly. I, knew lots, I knew lots of peers that took that route because they thought that was the only way to grow and ended up going back into sales as individual contributors, making a lot more money, by the way, um, because you know they'd felt forced to. But if once they found opportunities to stay as sales rep, so so getting back to sales manager. So what's the when you hire a new frontline sales manager? What's the biggest adjustment they have to make? Uh, well, the biggest adjustment I think is really clearly understanding what their job is, and and you know as an individual contributor, their job is to go out and hit the numbers to sell stuff, you know to close deals and to do it as as as, as quickly as at as high margins, uh, and 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 all as possible, as. As a sales manager, your role is completely different. You know, all the things that made you great as an individual contributor aren't necessarily things that make you great as, as a sales manager. Your role as a sales manager is getting things done through your people. You know, so as, as contrast, I know if I'm a salesperson, the way I make my numbers is by going out, finding and doing deals. As a sales manager, I'm not responsible. I'm not the person that produces revenue. My people are the people that produce revenue. So how do I get each one of my people performing at the top level possible? How do I get each one of my people achieving their numbers? So that mind shift from going to what I'm, I, I know and was good at or great at as an individual contributor is completely different as a sales manager. It's all about getting things done through your people. Which really speaks to coaching at this point. Um, what's the difference between managing and coaching? Is is I I think I, well I'll, I'll rephrase it a little bit. What's the difference between management and leadership? And and I think you know management is is all about I would say the mechanics or even the business management side of things. It's about the analysis and understanding, you know, my pipelines, understanding performance, understanding those kinds of things. Business management is really critical uh, in a sales manager's role. But then you start saying, well, how do I translate that into getting things done through people? And getting things done through people uh, really in, involves coaching. It, it says I have to understand each person. I have to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are. I have to understand what you know how to get the most out of them. You know whether it's it could be each person has different behavioral styles, and I could go, you know, be fairly tough and abrupt with a person because they they appreciate that kind of directness, where somebody else may need a lot more hand holding and a lot softer approach. But you know, as a manager, my job is to maximize performance. My job then is to coach and develop them to each achieve what they could. Or those that can't perform is to move them to areas where they can perform, which may be out of the company. So coaching, as you're saying, is much more about leadership. Code, I, I would say leadership is the combined aspect of business management and coaching. You can't do one without the other. I, I in fact, wrote a, a blog post today where I think a lot of people confuse this is, is that I can be a fantastic coach, but if I'm coaching on the wrong things, 
we fail. Uh, I can be fantastic at business management. I can look at and say, our pipelines are crap. This is what we need to do to fix our pipelines. But if I can't translate that into changes in behavior in what my salespeople do, however great my business acumen and my business management talent is, I, you know, um, we fail. You know, so so we have to approach both in, in balance and leadership, I think, is that marriage of business management or business acumen with coaching and developing and knowing how to get things done through others. Right. So you, you had laid out a number of rules for coaching or just definitions, let's say, of coaching, talking about developing people's capabilities to succeed in their jobs, addressing mm-hmm. their behaviors and attitudes. That's that's an important right. one. Right. Right. So it really is. Coaching goes across lots of dimensions. It's, it's, it's their behaviors. It's their attitudes. It's their skills. It's their competencies. A couple of things. You know, it is primarily directed towards um, their performance in the current job. You know, if we do want to look at developing people for future jobs and future opportunities, but but we primarily focus on maximizing their performance in the current job. Some things that people, I think, scare people away from coaching is coaching is not about fixing people. We aren't shrinks. All we're trying to do is get them to perform as well as possible in the job. So, so it's not about fixing people and their deepest insecurities <laughs> and the fact that their father, you know, had too high expectations of them and they feel abused because of that. That's not what we do as coaches. That's what shrinks do. And that's not our job. But actually there is, and we'll get into this in just a second, but I mean, there is an element of, <laughs> of, uh, similarity in terms of the approaches of, let's say, therapists and and coaches, in terms of how they ask questions of the people they're coaching, because as I we think, talk about it, it's, I, it's yeah, we're not as a coach, you're not there to give people the answers; you're there to help them think, right, and come to the conclusions themselves. That's exactly it. There's the the there's in the book I talk about the difference between kind of directive and, and, and non-directive coaching. And, and basically, directive coaching is telling people what to do. You know, go make this call, do these things, then come back to me and tell me what happens. Well, and you, you, and you laid out some conditions when you want to use that. I think it's important. For yeah, you should, you should yeah. probably, you had three, I think, primary ones but, you should lay those well, out. Well, let me contrast that first. So directive sure. coaching is basically telling non-directive coaching is getting people to think about things and helping them come up with the answers themselves. So clearly, if we want to have a sustained impact on people's performance, you know, clearly we want to do as much coaching in a non-directive way as possible. The more we can get our people to think about something. So if I'm doing a deal review with an individual and, and that person is talking about the deal and I'm coaching them about, you know, he, you know, here's how you better qualify them here. You know, what do you think we need to do to move this thing forward? What do you think we need to do to get better alignment around the buyers? You know, how do we how might we do some of these things and get the person to help discover the answers for themselves? What you build in that single coaching session around the deal is the similar thought process that that individual will start applying to all their deals. So you get huge leverage from non-directive coaching, helping people figure it out themselves. 
But there's some times where you just can't do it. You either don't have things like the risk of error is too high that if they if they did something and did something wrong, it could have possibly very serious um, negative consequences for the customer or very serious negative consequences to the company. Um, or if there's tremendous time pressure, I, I use the, the 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 example of if if I'm a passenger and, and my salesperson is driving and uh, the salesperson is about to hit a light pole, I don't want to go through a non-directive <laughs> coaching exercise. Socratic questioning about well, what do you what do you think that light pole might do to the car and us? I want to say put the goddamn brakes on and steer away. <laughs> so I want to use the the directive coaching technique. So so there are some times and there the, the third. So I think. You know, one is the the risk or the consequences of failure are so high. Two is is the time the time is so compressed that you can't do it. Three is is uh, the mindset or the behaviors or attitudes of of the person. Sometimes the person just has the wrong mindset, and and the only thing you can do is is tell them what to do. But again, these are all that kind of coaching technique doesn't have a lot of sustainability. No, that should be exception based. Exactly, but but you know, there as managers, we have to leverage both of those, and we have to leverage them based on the situation, the person, and what we're trying to achieve, both in the short and the long term. Yeah, but again, with the conditions you laid out in terms of you know need for speed, eliminate risk, and you know why are we question why are we talking about this when the decision was made by the CEO already? Um, those tend to, I, to me, at least my experience, tend to be more exceptions as opposed to your day to day ongoing, yep. which will be non-directive. Yep. And I think a great yep. perspective you draw out in the book for managers who are doing coaching is that asking great questions is really like doing a great discovery call. Well, that's it. I mean, what what we do is is I mean, one of the ways our, our careers as salespeople and individual contributors uh, um, has helped us in becoming sales managers is hopefully we've become very good at 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 asking great discovery questions with. Um, of our, our customers and helping them learn through that process. Well, that same approach and that same technique is something that we take into coaching our people. You know, just as we want to help our customers discover something and learn, we want to help our people discover something and learn. And so, you know, I, I kind of jokingly say this, but, you know, most of us have learned spin selling at some point in our career, but we've learned spin selling from the point of view of how do we engage a customer. Right. You know, we think of, well, gee, what if I take that situation, problem, implication, and need uh, kind of approach and look at it in in developing and coaching a person? Yeah, you know, I think one, yeah, absolutely, and I think sort of pursuant to that is is that it's really important when you're asking these questions that they not be sort of the typical leading questions, but the actual discovery questions. You know, you you want to know the answer. As well as you know, they as well as you want them to understand what the answer needs to be. Yeah, and and I think one of the things too is is um, we think we as managers we tend to think of what we are doing to our people or for our people, how we're helping develop them. But one of the things to keep keep 
um, in mind is in really good coaching, each person is learning a lot. Yeah, and as absolutely. managers, we have to keep our minds open to say, what are we learning from our people? Uh, you know, it could be we're learning how to become better coaches. It could be we need to shift our, our point of view that, that, you know, the salesperson has an interesting point of view, say, about a specific issue that we may have completely misread or misinterpreted in those kinds of things. So, so it really coaching, effective coaching is really a good conversation where each person comes prepared to both teach and learn. And at a sufficient level of detail that you really surface the issues. Absolutely. Because I think this is a problem I see a lot of times with managers. It's, to my point about the leading questions, it's, it's, you know, if you're a manager and you're going into a coaching session with your mind already made up about the answers you want to hear and you ask these leading questions, you're not going to learn anything new. Yeah, what what you what I call that is basically a disguised sense of directive. Uh, yeah, it coach, is. Coaching is where I mean the most blatant example of directive coaching is do this, do that. A lot of times, managers are you know put a veneer of let me ask you these leading questions that have only one possible answer. And so, in in some sense, it's a form of directive coaching, which isn't terribly effective. No, and to your point, it's and the point I always like to emphasize to managers is that yeah, there is a wisdom of crowds effect going on here. Is that you know two heads are smarter than one? You know, if you think you know all the answers, yeah, you're probably limiting your effectiveness as a manager. And that's exactly it. And so that's why we both learn something. It's it, it's kind of a shared discovery. It, and the two heads better than one. It's 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 you know how do we together come up with the best solution? Whether it's how to reach a certain uh, individual at a customer, how to get past gatekeepers or whatever, how to express our value proposition, how to drive a deal, how to prospect more effectively. Or even, you know, how to use my time during the week more effectively. Those are all areas of coaching that that we get into these these really powerful conversations. And I think the, the, the effectiveness is these conversations are applied not just in that situation, but then are lessons to be applied in every similar kind of situation. So whether it's uh, this pro- prospecting call, but lessons I can apply to every prospecting call, this deal, lessons I can apply to every deal, and so on and so forth. So speaking about time, so what do you recommend relative to frequency of coaching sessions, you know, Formal, informal setting, one-on-one. What, what, what do you recommend? Uh, well, well, first of all, I think we need to get rid of the idea of a coaching session. You know, and I think you know we did some research a number of years ago, um, and it's kind of an offhand question we asked people: How frequently do you coach? And uh, I, the majority of the answers came back uh, once a quarter or less. Um, which is clear, blew us away. And as we dove into it, we find that people think of coaching as some, they think of coaching in the context of the coaching session. So what we need to do is we need to say, how do we integrate 
coaching into everything we do. So if I'm a sales manager, I'm sitting down with my people every day doing deal reviews. And what I'm doing typically is I'm looking at it from a business management point of view. I'm looking at it trying to understand what are we doing, what's the likelihood of winning the deal, and all those kinds of things. What do we need to do to win the deal? What I really need to do is say I have a business management objective and I have a coaching objective in every deal review. So so I take advantage of, of killing two birds with one stone. So I'm, I'm both understanding what's happening in the deal, but I'm coaching that person on, on how to develop a much stronger deal strategy, how to compress the sales cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the most powerful next steps? So we need to integrate coaching into everything we do. So whether we're doing deal reviews, pipeline reviews, call reviews, prospecting reviews, whether we're doing one-on-ones looking at their time blocking, we need to integrate coaching into into that thing so we have both the business management objective and the coaching objective so we kill two birds with one stone and we really focus and intensify the impact we have in coaching well you and i were both at a conference together we didn't actually see each other there uh back in san francisco earlier this year and one of the speakers uh you know fairly senior sales type at a you know high profile SaaS company basically scoffed at the notion of one-on-ones as sort of a you know quaint outdated notion you know what are your thoughts about that i think it's i think it's garbage um (laughs) i mean it's i think it goes to this kind of mechanistic view uh, um, that a lot of people are getting about here's the script here's you know everybody's the same and so on and so forth but in reality, everybody's different, you know, and, and the way to deal with people uh, and get them to perform at their, at their highest is, um, has to be individually based. There are some things that we can do very effectively with our teams, you know, so team meetings and leveraging team meetings, you know, to coach and develop people. But typically there we're looking at at overall skills. So I want to improve, say, the prospecting skills of the whole team and lead a discussion on prospecting with the team. So we, we work on, on that. But if I want to if I want to develop the skills of each individual because they're different, I have to address each individual. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. So, last last question on this topic before I go to the final segment of the show is: is uh, how would you describe your own coaching style? Autocratic. <laughs> <laughs> Very directive. <laughs> no, no, is is and and again, I think part of it is is you know over the years and process of, of discovery is. Um, I think a, a very kind of, you know, leveraging everything I can use, using mostly non-directive, but where appropriate, some directive techniques. And I got to uh, confess, though, I was very blessed when uh, when I went into my first sales management job. I was working for IBM, and IBM takes management and leadership very, very mm-hmm. seriously. Mm-hmm. So almost before I had the chance to inflict myself on my new team, <laughs> I went to two weeks of training and there the you know the the one message that still res I think about every day 
is it's leadership and management is about getting things done through your people. So it's all about the people. And so I had from the very first day I became a manager, some of the best training and coaching on management and leadership. And fortunately, that shaped me at a very early stage. I can't say that I didn't fall in bad habits where I'd get frustrated with an individual and I'd, or I'd do all the wrong things. But, you know, over time, you know, when you get your teeth kicked in enough, hopefully you recognize that and, and you say, you know, there are more effective ways to help develop our people. Right. All right. Well, good. Well, and I'm still learning as we go. So. <laughs> well, yeah, we have to keep on learning as we go. I mean, that's so I'm nearing the end of the show and I always have some standard questions I ask all my guests. So you were on the show before, so I actually have some new questions for you. And uh, the first one is, and you can give me one word answers or elaborate if you wish. And the first one is, is it in your mind, is it easier to teach a technical non-salesperson how to sell or to teach a salesperson how to how a product or service really works? Mm, that's an interesting, um, interesting question. Uh, you know, I, I think um, I've always had surprisingly but tremendous luck with taking non-sales people and teaching them how to sell, given that they have the right mentality and framework and it's something that they really want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, I, I, I was coaching a team of, of very, very senior, experienced people. They they moved. It was a professional services company, and they moved from delivery into uh, into business development. And so they understood the product, they understood the services, they understood the value proposition, and all that very well. They just didn't understand how to go out and find customers and engage them. Um, and you know. You start going through the stuff. Here's how high high performing sales professionals work, and they listened and they paid attention. Whereas if I went and told experienced salespeople the same thing, they'd get bored and sit back, cross their arms, or start looking at their iPhones and so on and so forth, and say yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. They they don't listen. So these people didn't know what they should or shouldn't be doing based on mythology. The other thing too is you know I've always found. You know, a lot of these professions, if you think of it, sales, the sales process, which is core to effective selling, is really a specialized application of project management. So I took these professional services people who understood and mastered project management right. and really, under, really could leverage that. And I said, you know, all we're doing here is project management, but very focused on a set of applications. And you could see the light bulbs going off in their eyes. Um, so I really like taking experienced non, uh, non-sales professionals who really want to sell, again, mm-hmm. having that right mindset. Um, I can get them up to performing faster than I can maybe get a salesperson to understand a very technical, difficult product. All right. Good answer. One I agree with, by the way. So uh, second question is, when you look at your own sales skill set, what's one thing that you need to improve? Mm. I'm a master of everything. Oh, there you go. <laughs> no, I, um, I think I need to... Um, continue to work on my patience. 
Hence, um, the, hence the answer, autocratic earlier. <laughs> <laughs> now it all makes sense. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> is, is, you know, I'm a, a very heavy type A. And I move at a very, very fast pace and like moving at that, that fast pace. And I've noticed sometimes in my professional practice, while it's driven by good intentions, is I lose people. I, I lose people. I confuse them. Um, and uh, I lose my impact and effectiveness. And so as impatient as I am, as fast as I want to to move things forward for all the right reasons, um, you know, everything we do is a team effort and, and the result of our work with our clients or our customers all arriving at the same place at the same time. So I need to continue to work on my patients. Okay. So when we get together to ride our bicycles, are you going to be type A? Am I going to be struggling to keep up? Well, you know, I, I, I want to make sure I'm at least half a wheel length ahead of you. <laughs> at all times. <laughs> regardless, of, regardless of how much it's killing me. <laughs> yeah, not, not that I'm competitive at all either. So that'll be an interesting ride. Um, so... Next question: What's one non-business book every salesperson should read? The the most important one that's come to mind, and I'm a, a bit ashamed that it took me so long to discover it, is Mindset by Carol Dweck. Oh, great book! Um, and it it came out about I'm trying to think maybe eight or nine years ago. I actually just discovered it this uh, this uh, spring, and it is it, you know. Everything that we do, both in our personal lives and our business lives, is really a reflection of our mindsets and really whether we have the, the, the closed mindset or the growth-oriented mindset. And, it, and we have both operating in different situations mm-hmm. at the same time. But I think the, what's been most impactful on my life and as I start seeing other people is, is, is mindset. Excellent. Okay. Last question. Quick one. Favorite place to go on vacation? Uh, <laughs> well, I tend to prefer kind of extreme or adventure locations. So what I, I end up doing is doing some going someplace where my bike is always part of it and I can do long bike rides. Excellent. Um, I've got a recommendation so, for you. We'll talk about after, oh, after okay. we're off the air. Or I'm into kind of not mountain mountain climbing, but comfortable mountain climbing. So I have a goal uh, in next year to do Kilimanjaro. Ah, very interesting. Okay. So you have some significant milestone coming up in your life? Uh, It's whatever milestone my wife has for me (laughs) (laughs) coming up today. All right. Well, good. Well, Dave, as always, pleasure to talk to you. And uh, tell people how they find out more about your book and about you. Uh, it's, uh, the book is on Amazon. It's sales manager survival guide. Um, there's also a special book site, salesmanagersurvivalguide.com, which has some excerpts, some testimonials. We've also used that as a, a, a in the book, we refer to a number of special resources, things like the uh, sales management ecosystem, the sales competency model, and so on and so forth. So people who buy the book can get access to those special resources um, at salesmanagersurvivalguide.com. Um, and you can find me at Twitter at David A. Brock. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me at my blog site, partnersinexcellenceblog.com.
Excellent. Excellent. All right. Great, Dave. Thanks again. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. Easy way to do that is to subscribe to this podcast. Accelerate on iTunes. Take a minute. Do that because then you'll make it part of your daily routine whether you listen on your commute in the gym or as part of your morning sales meeting. And then you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Dave Brock, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.